Hello, coders. Good afternoon. It is episode 95 of this House Code Well podcast. And, um, yeah, sorry, I was just checking the lights. <laughs> Looking at the stream, it looks a bit dark for some reason. Uh, yeah, 95, episode 95. That's, uh, nuts, isn't it? We're moving very quickly to 100. Um, I am currently using a new little bit of audio equipment today. So I hopefully it sounds okay. Uh, we'll see in post when I update this stuff, but hopefully it sounds a little bit cleaner than usual. I'm using a cloud lifter. Anywho, today's show is all about maintainability, code maintainability. And as the title suggests, not all code, in my opinion, is equal. And I want to discuss what I mean by that throughout this show. And I've been thinking about this, um, this past week about what is, how do you define maintainable code? What is main, what is unmaintainable code? Last episode, episode uh, 94, we were discussing, uh, things like, um, things like, uh, uh, PHPMD and uh, cyclomatic complexity and, um, auditing tools for code and stuff like that. All well and good that those things are in play and you, you use those, but how do you identify what code is actually maintainable and what code isn't maintainable? How do you measure, uh, what kind of code you should work on more than other pieces of code? We'll dive into all of that today. So as usual, I should say this is a, a live show. So if anybody's got any questions or comments, then uh, please don't hesitate. Put them down in the comment section below and I will answer them live on air. This is also goes out to the podcast. This is something that I don't normally mention I should do. It's just, you know, something that I just keep forgetting to mention. This is a podcast and therefore um, <laughs> you can actually get the How to Code Well podcast. This is an audio stream through things like... Um, uh, Spotify and iTunes and Google podcast and all the, it's a podcast. <laughs> uh, so code maintainability. Hmm. <laughs> this is a, this is an interesting topic. I should say that I don't actually have any notes. Uh, this is just things that I've been thinking of. It's been playing on my mind. You know, what is maintainable code? What is unmaintainable code? Where we are taught from whether you go to uh, have a CS degree, whether it's been taught via a lecturer or whether it's um, something that you read it from a book or whether it's something that you learn on an online course. We are taught that our code needs to be um, maintainable. And in order for it to be maintainable, it needs to be clean, clean code. So clean code equals maintainable code. Hmm. Okay. So when I say clean code, I mean like easy to read, easy to understand, um, easy for someone else to pick up and, and change easy for it to be extendable and, and, you know, adhere to different things, uh, that influence that piece of code. The idea is that you, the code that you write today is is hopefully code that you will keep maintaining for a long time and keep reusing and keep building upon. And therefore, it's, if it's easy to understand and decipher, uh, then it will be easy for you to improve it going forward. And that's the whole point of it being being maintainable. The thing is, though, the the the, the thing that really gets me is is that that assumption there that all the code is equal. So by saying that all clean code is maintainable code, you're then, you're basically saying that all code is the same <laughs> in the sense that, you know, if every line of code was nice and clean and readable, then the maintainability, maintain, you know, the maintenance overhead would be smaller, which I kind of get. However, there are, there are pieces of code that are more, how do I put this, that are more um, used uh, than other pieces of code and therefore their maintenance overhead would be far higher than other pieces of code. Um, I'm not really explaining myself very well, so let's jump into an analogy. <laughs> but before I do, let me uh, let me just do something. I haven't done it yet. Let's <laughs> crack open a beer. Thank you. <laughs> 
Cheers. I hope everybody's having a good week. It's April the 1st today. I've had no practical jokes. <laughs> mm. So my analogy, this is something I came up with when I was uh, taking Murphy out for a walk earlier. So how does one measure what code needs to be, what, 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 what piece of code needs to be focused on in order for it, uh, for it to be uh, better maintained? So let's say, for instance, let's say, for instance, you were working in a team of developers, say you were working in a team of five developers and your code base was, I don't know, half a million lines of code, which may sound huge, but actually that's kind of, you know, normal. <laughs> half a million lines of code, there's five of you and it was, I don't know, an e-commerce shopping cart, right? So it was producing money. It was making the client money. And there were a few of you that were perhaps building new pieces of functionality. So new client requirements. And then the, the rest of you were perhaps dealing with support requests, you know, customer tickets um, and bug fixing. Okay. So, so you've got a split there. You've got a split of the the team. So some are creating new features and some are maintaining the existing features and also dealing with um, being very reactive in terms of customer support tickets. That's usually the split. That's usually how, how systems work. You, you usually have that sort of split of, of teams. So how do you go about, let's talk about the maintain, uh, the, the maintenance team, the team that's dealing with you know, maintaining the existing code base. How do they measure the code base for areas of code that needs to be maintained more than other pieces of code? Um, because it's all well and good having clean code all over the place, but there'll be some pieces of code that require uh, more, more granular maintenance. How do you measure that? How do you, how do you work that out? Hello, Bernard. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, uh, it's good to have you here. We're talking today about maintain, maintainable code. And in my opinion, not all code is equal. And I want to try and I've got a, an analogy in my head that I want to try and sort of bring to life. Um, so let's imagine for a minute that this, this, uh, this e-commerce shopping cart is half a million lines of code. It could be more. There's five of you on it. Some of you are working on new features. Some of you are working on, you know, the maintenance part of it. So how does the maintenance team or the bug fixing team or the support team or whatever you want to call that team, how do they work out what to, to, to fix? And, you know, if they're, if they're delving with code, um, or fixing code, fixing customer support bugs. When do they decide, hang on a minute, we need to actually do a piece of work here to, uh, refactor, restructure, uh, reorganize, redevelop, rewrite parts of the code base because this piece of code has, has, is buggy and it's buggy because of all of the, the customer support tickets and everything. How do they, how, how, how do they measure, measure that? Now, by saying that, by saying that all code needs to be clean um, because it, all code needs to be readable um, and and that becomes maintainable, I don't think I don't really agree with. I mean, I agree with the fact that you need to write clean code, but I don't agree with the fact that every piece of code needs to be clean. <laughs> and and the reason why I don't agree with that because then you're chasing for perfection. Then you're chasing for this this un, un, unobtainable goal of code perfection before it actually gets rolled out to perf production, um, and that is dangerous. If you start chasing perfection, then uh, then 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 you'll never get something live. Just look at the How to Code Well platform, for example. Um, I <laughs> haven't got the uh, the back end up and running yet. Or in the in the state that uh, it, it it has been in the for the last say three months, so yeah. So how do you how do you measure how do you decide what piece of code do you do you work on more than others, 
Um, and the thing is, we don't work in an ideal situation. There's no, there's no ideal system. There's no, you know, I've never gone into a project where everything is, is, is clean. Everything is unit tested. Everything is working. The documentation, uh, just reads like butter and, you know, setting up my system, my development machine just works. I just follow the instructions and off I go. I've never actually done that. I've never actually experienced that. There's always been some hangups somewhere down the line. And I've never actually, uh, I don't think I've worked for a very long time without actually fixing something that this is why we have QA teams, right? So when you, when you produce a, uh, a feature, it goes out to QA, QA often <laughs> find bugs, bugs that you haven't experienced or, it's, it's because you perhaps haven't thought of the way the user is going to use it in the sense that the QA engineer has, uh, has looked at. So what I'm saying is we don't, we don't live in this ideal situation, this ideal world where everything just works and everything works because everything's nice and clean and readable. If everything was clean and readable, we would still have this problem. We would still have bugs. We would still have to address customer support issues and all of this stuff. Okay. So the obvious choice of where do you look in terms of maintenance from a client's point of view, from the point of view of the person who is actually spending money on this and generating money from this would be the moneymaker, right? Would be the, the, the place in which the money is, is, uh, is generated. So for instance, um, the shopping carts, the, the, the checkout pages. And then perhaps after that, it would be maybe how to get a customer to that, that, uh, that process, that checkout. So it could be search. Um, it could be filtering that kind of stuff. So that's from the client's perspective. But what about technicalities? What about from our perspective, the developer perspective? I guess we could use the tools that I mentioned in the last podcast, such as your PHP MD and all of that stuff to do some sort of auditing and maintenance, sorry, or auditing and reporting to identify areas of, of risky code. Fine. We could do that. But is there other ways that we could look at? And I do, you know, is there anything else that we could, we could look any other metrics that, that one could look at to identify what areas of code need to be, um, uh, addressed more often than other areas of code? Um, what, what areas of code should a developer give more value to compared to other areas of code? Like, for example, um, you know, you can always test something to the nth degree, but you'll always, there'll always be a possibility of a bug. But in some cases you want to test, um, every possible single edge case on certain critical features than more than others, for instance. So my analogy is, um, it's a bit of a weird one, this one, but, um, imagine, imagine if you will, and this goes back to the fact that uh, that no, that code isn't equal. That there is no equal level of code. You can't say that one piece of code is valued more than you know valued at the same time as another piece of code. You can't say, in my opinion, that your checkout um, process, your checkout routines, is valued less than your I don't know your. Um, <laughs> I don't know, your privacy policy or your blog. Yeah, yeah, your blog, your blog articles. Um, because the client would be putting obviously more value on, you know, a financial value at, at, at least um, on the checkout than it would be on their blog articles. But anyway, the analogy I've got is, is about um, councils and roads, this is something that popped into my head earlier whilst I was trying to think about how I would discuss this. So this could be completely wrong and, um, it could be, it could have a lot of holes in it, but here we go. So imagine if you will, if, if you, if you took a map of, I don't know, your, uh, your, your county, your, your state, your, wherever you are, your country, um, and you looked at all of the roads on that map. Now there'll be, there'll be, uh, different types of roads. There'll be A roads, you know, there'll be motorways, highways, there'll be, um, uh, farm roads, there'll be 
loads of different types of roads. No road would be the same. There'll be roads that have a higher uh, risk rate in terms of uh, people having accidents. So there'll be more, there'll be certain roads that have more accidents than other roads. There'll also be roads that are more maintained than other roads in the sense of um, farm roads would probably be less maintained. They'll be full of potholes and um, other bits and pieces, other, other, you know, blind corners and all that jazz. Then say motorways, <laughs> Because with a motorway, you want to make sure that uh, your cars and your traffic are, are continually moving. You you never want to stop the mo- a motorway, right? Because that's gonna that's gonna cause you no ends of problems. But if you have to drive slower on a farm road because you don't want to get your your wheels hit with potholes, then so be it. The council would look. Um, would would want the motorways or the highways or the A roads to be maintained more than those farm roads. Those farm roads have less of um, they they might be more risky in terms of um, in in terms of the fact that they are on blind corners. The the hedgerows could be huge, so you might not be able to see the the you know around the corners um, better. Or, you know, in a, in a safe manner, there might, there may not be anywhere to overtake, you know, safely. Um, and so on paper, those farm roads would be, you would see those as roads that you would like to maintain more, right? You would, you would want to make them safer. However, there is less value on those roads compared to the motorways because the motorways have more traffic and the motorways are there because, you know, there's, well, there's all sorts. I mean, without the motorways, you know, the money would be, would be an issue because, you know, there were <laughs> all the, all the, all the, um, all the heavy goods vehicles would, wouldn't be able to travel from, you know, great distances in the, in a short period of time as, as they could do. They would have to go through all the B roads and farm roads and all of that jazz. So there's more of what I'm trying to say is there's more value to uh, maintain the motorways than there is to maintain the farm roads. And it's, it's, it is a, it is an unfortunate reality, especially when you have um, a number of, of, of accidents on these farm roads, because perhaps someone has decided that it's a good good day to go for a bike ride and you know they 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 don't keep in or something and i don't know there is an accident that happens because there's a blind spot and the car hit the bike or something like that you you often hear a lot of nasty accidents that happen on on uh, farm roads b roads roads that aren't very main aren't maintained very well or they're not very safe compared to other roads um high sort of high, even you know even less traffic roads but roads that are more maintained um, and unfortunately, what happens is that the council they they have a they have this very morbid um, sort of spreadsheet, I guess, where they have a number of accidents and they have a threshold. You know, the amount of accidents to require a response in order to help maintain or make sure that road is safer um, than it was before. Now, if you look at that sort of analogy and think of it in terms of your project, in terms of your code. If you think of your the roads as different features in your project. So for instance, you would have your you know you you would have your um your the checkout in the e-commerce world you have you you checkout would be your your motorway. Maybe your search and filtering would also be a motorway. But the other areas the other areas such as your blog articles or your even your your support pages your contact pages or secondary features they are valued less than the features that are actually the whole point of the system um and so there is less emphasis on maintaining those parts of the code compared to the other parts of the code so what i'm saying here is that the the checkout co- checkout code your searchability code maybe your d- delivery logic code um the 
you know, your um, upselling code, your recommendation engine code is valued more than the code that actually displays the blog articles or whatever feed. Um, the thing that isn't actually driving the money of the system. Now that might sound obvious. That might sound completely and utterly obvious to you. But when you look at these, um, these, these metrics, these auditing tools that I mentioned last time, like PHPMD and all of that stuff, it doesn't, it, it isn't aware of those kind of context. It just gives you a list of, of risks. Um, and it's up to the developer to make that decision as to what risks they deem as more of a priority, more of a higher value risk than the other risks. And that's what I mean by their, you know, code is not equal. So what the reason why I'm talking about this is because, um, I, I have, there is, there has been a, a project or a, a long time ago where I spent a long time trying to make everything as as, as pristine as I possibly could do. But I was spending far too much time on the, um, on the secondary features, shall we say, rather than the features that actually matter to the project. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's basically, that's basically it in a nutshell, I suppose. Not all code is equal and not all code should be treated equally. Now, by this logic, by this sort of stance, you're then accepting the fact that there is code out there that is okay to not be maintained as much as higher priority code, which sounds awful when I say it because that goes against everything that, um, you know, I, I, I'm a good practice guy. I, I like my good practice. I like to make code clean. I, I like to do all those, those things. I like to test code. I like to, you know, make sure that I'm putting in good practices here and there. But the thing is when you're in the wild west and you're, you know, you've got something in the wild, you know, you have to make a judgment call as to where are you going to spend your time? Because that is the thing that you're losing time. Um, and let's say for instance, you have two bugs that come in. One is from the checkout and one is from the blog article. Where are you going to go? What, as a, as perhaps a PM, what are you going to prioritize? You know, how badly is that article bug going to, or, or it doesn't necessarily need to be a bug. It could just be, you know, the knowledge that that piece of code is actually really badly written. And there's a, maybe because of it, there's a performance issue or because of it, you can't upgrade it or main or, um, you know, uh, extend it using different functionality. Maybe you want to, um, alter the way that people use that blog. Maybe that blog is going to be, um, you know, you need, you need to perhaps migrate that blog somewhere else, right? In, and that's a, a future task. And so you know that, that you need to update the current code base for that to be an easier thing. But at the same time, you've got all of these other issues to do with the checkout. <laughs> so, so it's a question of where do you, where do you put your resource? Do you, do you put the resource at the, the, the moneymaker end or do you put the resource at the, the, the other end that will make, will, will, which will save you time in the long run. But the thing is, the problem with us developers is that we will, we will make problems more complicated than they should do, than they should be. We will, we will try and make things as brilliant and as clean and as, um, refactored and as, you know, marvelous as, uh, as we can do. Um, and we will try and find problems when there isn't any, and we'll try and solve them. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that these, these tools, they're great, but you need to take them with a bit of a pinch of salt and you need to understand that, that code is not all equal. There are areas of code that just have a different worth. Um, and, 
I don't want to say it, but this means that you can let some pieces of code just sort of, you know, as long as, as long as it's functioning, um, there isn't a big need for it to be updated straight away. If there are other requirements going on now, this is the thing. This is the constant cycle that we're in because the thing is that maintaining code isn't just fixing bugs or refactoring or anything like that. You know, it's not just that Uh, maintaining code is also maintaining the fact that uh, maybe PHP version has changed, right? And so um, you want to update your system. You want to update your version of PHP and therefore you need to go through a bunch of um, exercises in order to do that. So maybe you're updating from some particular function that is now available in PHP 8 than compared to what it was in PHP 7. I'll, g- I'll give you an example. So um, there is you know, a way in which you could find a position or find that there is a substring in a string um, is to use um, strapos and strolang. So you would get the length of the string that you want to find within, within the, get the length of the substring within the string. So you get that length, then you would get the start position. So strapos, you've got the length, which is strolen, and then you check whether that, that um, is in the position of the outer string. And you would do that, you would combine the strolang and the strapos, and you would check for whether it's false or not. Um, but let's say, for instance, you want to look, the, let's say, for instance, the substring is actually at the start of the, of the thing, of the, um, of the main string. So your, your position would, your first position would be at position zero. There is a function in, in, uh, PHP eight called starts with, <laughs> um, which will do all of this for you, which will do all of that for you. And, um, and so what I'm saying is that there, there are, there are things to maintain that it's not, it isn't necessarily a bug because Strolang and Strapoz and all of that stuff still work in PHP 8. There's no need to change. Um, there, there may be some performance, um, benefits to change. But what I'm saying is that maintaining, maintaining code isn't always just fixing broken code. It's, it's bringing your code to an updated standard. Um, but that, that, but the thing is, you you as I go back to, you want to be identifying which code you value more than other pieces of code. Um, but um, you know, m- upgrading a code base. I mean, it could be a framework as well. It could be it could be the, the fact that you want to upgrade your framework from I don't know a version of Sym- a lower ver- to a, a higher version of Symphony. So. So it's not maintaining code isn't all about fixing code. It, 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 actually, fixing code, fixing bugs is a very small part of maintaining code. Um, there's also the refactoring. So there's there's updating documents, code docs. There's also changing the the variable names to from you know as a as a more readable variable name or a function name or a file name. You could be um, looking at a, a huge chunk of code. You know, like it could be, it could be a file of a thousand lines of code or even a method with a thousand lines of code. I've seen a few of those around. And, um, what you want to do is, is break that up into smaller pieces of code, smaller functions with single responsibilities. And, um, so you're not actually fixing anything. There isn't a bug to fix. You are just making the code more readable for the next person or for yourself to who who is maintaining that code going forward. Like so so let's say for instance, if you were to pick up that code again in the next two years, or even next six months, or even three months, and read that code, will you fully understand it in the one pass read? Or will you have to reread that and try and work out what variable X is compared to what variable N is um, or I? So, so yeah. So basically, I want to say that maintaining code isn't just fixing the anything that doesn't work. It's also making sure that you know it is it is readable, um, it is refactored, and it is clean. However, that takes time. That takes a lot of time. Um, and you want to be spending the time where the time is required. 
So when I go back to the, when we talk back uh, about the, uh, the, the e-com site where you've got the split between the maintenance team and you've got the split, the other split where you've got the, 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 the feature team, the team building features. Um, the maintenance team, I guess, needs to do a little bit of, um, sort of investigation. And one piece of investigation, which I think is a really quite a good piece of investigation, which I don't think a lot of people do. Um, and that is, um, that is to look at the code base on GitHub or GitLab or wherever it is in your source control and look at the areas of code that has the most amount of commits because that is a hot spot right there. That's a hot spot of a lot of code churn, a lot of code churn. There's been a lot of either fix features being brought into that, or there's been a lot of code that's been rebuilt or restructured or refactored again and again and again. Um, and it could be off the back of a lot of uh, bugs. This is where I like having my, my branches either called feature forward slash and then the, the, the branch and then the feature name or bug or fixes forward slash and then the name of the bug or the ticket number. Because then I can quickly see, oh yeah, that, that there was a, there was like five bugs and there was two features, you know, in this area of code. And therefore I know that it needs to be probably looked at in a, in maybe even restructured, maybe uh, reorganized, refactored to prevent more bugs from coming in. Um, so, you know, it's the higher footfall. It's the highest footfall. <coughs> so, yeah, it's, um, I've, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking about this a lot. And, and when I've been building the How to Code Well site, I've, I, thinking back on it, there's been a lot of areas of the code where I've spent so much time on, but it isn't actually the areas of code that is, that, that is actually the, the crux of the system. Um, it could, it's, you know, it's the blog articles. <laughs> it's the blog articles. Um, and maybe areas of the content management system that um, I've tried to get almost perfect, but there really isn't much of a need compared to a need for the subscription service, which I'm working on at the moment. So maybe I, maybe I've done it backwards. I don't know, but um, it, it, it just, it, it's just something that's on my mind. You know, what is, what is a piece of code that is more valuable than another piece of code. Now I don't want to get into this debate about, you know, back end is more valuable than the front end or, you know, you're, because you're only working on these kind of features, then you're not actually valued as a developer because you're only working on low value code. I don't want to get into that kind of arena. Um, I, I, it's more of a case of looking, taking a step back and looking at the whole code base and going, Hmm, what? So these auditing tools are saying that this function is more risky because it's got a higher cyclomatic complexity than this other function here. Um, or, you know, this, it's saying that this is more of a risky function because it's got less tests than the other function, but really you need to take it with a pinch of salt and actually add a little bit of context to this and actually see the amount of commits coming in. You want to, you want to see what the actual code is doing. Um, and, uh, and, and go from there really. So these auditing tools are great, but it's, it's, it, it's not all, it's not, it's not all the, it's not the thing that you want to just keep looking at. That is something that I keep having to tell myself. It's like, just because you've got the percentage up just by a single percent doesn't mean that your code is any better than it was. <laughs> oh dear. So I hope everybody is, uh, I hope everybody's doing well tonight. I hope everybody is, um, we have a bank holiday. We have a, a bank holiday. Uh, it's Good Friday tomorrow. And then it's uh, Bank Holiday Monday here in the UK, which is cool. So I'm hoping to do a little bit more code for How to Code Well this, uh, this weekend. I, I did mention that we are working on the, the order section. So this is a subscription, subscription section. Um, 
which is proving a little tricky. It's proving a little tricky because I'm having to re um, rewire a bit of the database. And I'm finding that um, some of the decisions I made beforehand, some of the assumptions I've made aren't the things that I'm going with now. And it's, I guess it's because I've, um, uh, I, I've, my, my thought, my thinking has evolved due to the f- other features that I've created. Um, so yeah, there's a number of new tables, a number of new entities coming through, but I'm, I've got it to a point now where, um, I have some, some data fixtures, some, some tests, uh, users with subscriptions coming through. Um, it isn't a million miles away from where it was in terms of structure from my last stream on Twitch on, uh, on, on Tuesday or even Sunday. Um, but it's, it isn't the shape I thought it would be compared to what it, what I was thinking it would be like last year. So yeah, other things that have happened. Uh, so I mentioned that the cloud lifter has come so that this hopefully should sound a little bit better. I can actually see the lights moving further up and down on my mixer deck desk, which is pretty cool. And I have also joined the mechanical keyboard, um, group. <laughs> so in my many years of programming, I've never actually owned a mechanical keyboard. Um, the keyboard that I currently use on my iMac is this horrible spongy, uh, magic keyboard from Apple, uh, which I thought was okay until I got the mechanical keyboard. Now I just think this is a piece of sponge. Um, also the thing that's really funny about this mechanical, this, um, this Apple keyboard is it has an ejection key for CDs. So you can eject the CD that doesn't exist. <laughs> in 2021. So anyway, this um this keyboard, I'll just get it here cuz I'll show it to the people on the stream. This is an Anpro 2 and um the keys are um the they're actually this they're actually I I bought the colored keys um because they are the the um the color scheme of the How to Code Well website. Um so yeah, it's so nice. It's so nice and it lights up, which is nice. It's got a, a nice, uh, nice feel to it. I'm not used to, uh, mechanical keys. So it feels very, it's like I'm learning to drive <laughs> again. It's, uh, it feels very different, but I can see the appeal. I understand now why people like, um, mechanical keys. And, um, when I took all the keys off and I was putting new keycaps on, that was just so fun. So fun to change all the colors up. It was so, so good. So yeah, I'm getting used to that. So in the next a few streams, I'll be using this one, this keyboard, and I'll probably be making a lot of mistakes because I'm, I'm not used to the, uh, uh, the, the shortcut keys. So this keyboard and the other one, one is they're both 60% uh, keyboards, but, uh, the shortcut keys are different because of the, position of the keys, but anyway, <laughs> so that's fun. Um, other things I'm, I'm, um, still on the fence about getting a Linux box, um, and replacing some of the, my Apple stuff with Linux. Um, yeah, I don't really know what, uh, what's going on there. I, um, I've been looking into the differences between, um, because when you're, when you, when you're an Apple guy, you you usually just buy the latest Apple thing that you can afford, <laughs> but when you're when you, when you're going into the world of Linux um, and you're going sort of balls deep in in the Linux world, you, you you know everything is down to you. So you can't you know you can't just buy the latest and greatest Linux laptop <laughs> like you can with an Apple jobby. So um, and just expect it to work. So. I've been doing a lot of research into different CPUs. Um, basically, I'm going to uh, long and long and short of it is I will probably end up building my own PC, um, my own Linux box somehow. And um, I, I'm so I'm researching uh, different CPUs, uh, RAM, motherboards, all of that jazz, even the different cases. <laughs> but um, I think that's probably where I'm going to go, but I, I really haven't put anything hard and fast down yet as to, as to that. Um, <coughs> so yeah, I'll be, I'll probably mention that as, uh, 
you know, as the months roll on. But um, the next stream will be, the next Twitch stream will be uh, this Sunday and I will be doing it um, earlier. I'll probably end up doing it about midday. It's only, it's because um, I want to take the afternoon off. (laughs) So usually the streams go on, um, on the Sundays all the way up until like half past five from half two. But now I want, I want to just bring it down a little bit this weekend. And, um, it's because it's the bank holiday and, uh, have a little bit of chill out time, um, uh, you know, in the evening. So, um, we'll probably start either 1130 or 12 and then we'll, we'll just go on until probably three ish, uh, and then, uh, and then call it a day, but I'll probably, I will probably be working on the, um, on the order system, um, in, uh, in symphony. So if you're interested in that, then come and join. It's at 1430 GMT, uh, here in the, uh, here in the UK, but, uh, yeah, that's it. So not all code is equal. Not all code is equal. And, um, you shouldn't see two pieces of code the same. You know, you shouldn't give too, in my opinion, you shouldn't value one piece of code higher than another, sorry, less than another piece of code. Um, so Bernard is asking uh, to put forward a request. I would like to put forward a request to you if you have time to make a talk about your in, how you interview candidates and what you expect from the candidate to be hired by you or any company. So... That's interesting. So do you mean me interviewing a candidate in the sense of I am the client and I'm looking for a developer? Um, Or do you mean from the other side of the table where I am the developer and this is what I expect from the client? Um, Talk about how how about how you interview a, oh how sorry i didn't read that how you interview a candidate and what you expect hmm yeah okay that's uh, that sounds like a very interesting uh, topic what would i expect from yeah so i've um i haven't done i've done um so i haven't i haven't done an interview on my own i've been part of an interview i've been um, well, a number of interviews I've been part of as the technical guy on the interview. So, um, I've been like, um, there with the HR, uh, department or, you know, the, the department head. And I've been there to assess the technical, um, knowledge and know-how of the candidate. Um, and then have meetings afterwards to discuss the candidate, the candidate's responses, um, and there has been times where I've tried to, um, I've tried to, well, I wouldn't say trick, but I've, I've just tried to sniff out uh, a good candidate versus a candidate that isn't, isn't great. <laughs> um, and, uh, it was interesting hearing the responses from the, from the hiring managers, uh, the people who are less technical in that, in those interviews, compared to my responses, because I was seeing it from a technical point of view, not from does this person work well in the team or does this person, um, you know, smell okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I was, I was, I was looking for, um, you know, even confidence. So I wasn't really too bothered by lack of confidence. I was more concerned with technical know-how. So I, th- I, I honestly think that when you do a, an interview, you must have different people in that interview, um, in that interview room that have different agendas that can bring that, that are looking for different parts of that interview. But I tell you what I'll do. Um, I will, <coughs> I will, uh, I will give that a little bit more thought. And maybe we'll do something next week where I'll, uh, I'll discuss that, um, in more detail and I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can pull in some of my experiences, but that is a really good topic. Thank you, Bernard. I appreciate that. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll do something next week where I'm discussing about interviews, um, and what I, what I expect from a candidate. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a really good one. Um, 
Martin is saying off topic are all chat rooms coded uh, by storing every chat line into a database document or can they be made using asynchronous code direct to the DOM? That is an interesting question. So are all chat rooms coded by storing every chat line? So every time you send a message um, into a database or can they be made using asynchronous code direct to the, to the DOM? Okay, so I would say, I would say that, um, I would say that if we were to take Slack, for instance, so obviously with Slack, there is an element or, you know, it could be any kind of thing in Microsoft Teams or whatever, um, but there is obviously a, an element of storage. Uh, data storage somewhere there is data storage because if there wasn't any data storage when you close your laptop um you and then opened it again <laughs> your all the data would be gone from the chat you had yesterday also um if you sign out of slack and then sign back into slack you also receive your your data now i don't know whether that's stored locally or whether that's stored um uh that's stored on the server, I would imagine it's stored on the server. Same with Signal, right? So I, I use Signal. Um, uh, I used to use WhatsApp, but now I use Signal. And if I was to move, if I had Signal running on my laptop and I had Signal running on my phone and someone sent me a message, it would appear in, on both devices. Also, uh, if I haven't, if I signed out of Signal on my laptop and I've used Signal for a week and then I sign into S Signal on my laptop, I'll suddenly get a load of messages come through of the messages that I had seen or, you know, been interacting with in the previous week. You get this message saying, you know, loading, you know, t you know, five of 80 messages, that kind of thing. So there is, there is an element of storage somewhere. And I think that it, it's a portion of both server side and, um, client side. Uh, obviously with those kind of things, you've got uh, encryption. <laughs> So, so in terms of the server-sided stuff, uh, there wouldn't be any way for there. There wouldn't be any clear text um, of your message. There would there would be the message that is encoded, uh, and then I mean I don't really know in terms of the in terms of signal in there how they do the encryption, um, but there would be a bunch of metadata I would imagine around that as to the time in which the message was sent and all of that jazz. Um, so then, then send each database line back to the DOM. Uh, it's not to do with security or storage. It just seems to be the preferred way. <coughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think, um, I think it would be, it would be, uh, stored on, in some database somewhere. Uh, and then it would be retrieved. And I, and I think that, um, there would be things in place to prevent, uh, that from being retrieved again, you know, so there would be some form of, I don't know, checksum against each other message. So you would know, so your, cl your client machine would know that you've received that message and that message would be, um, stored locally. And therefore, when you try and retrieve the message again, um, it would know that that's already been, been, uh, received and therefore it won't receive it again, that kind of stuff. Um, Excuse me. Yep, I got that Bernard call. Cool. Uh that's the uh that's the the interview stuff. That's an real that's such an interesting question that is. Because when I was interviewing when I was interviewing um I wanted to give the candidate the benefit of the doubt because I have been in that position for many 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 times. Um, I've interviewed probably four or five, maybe, maybe more, uh, let, let's just say less than seven. <laughs> um, so, you know, more than, more than, uh, more than three, less than seven and, um, over, over a course of a good few years. And, uh, the, I can remember my first ever one and that was so sort of like, you know, I've been in this position before and therefore, you know, it shouldn't be any kind of good cop, bad cop kind of routine. It should just be, you sit and you listen 
and then you confer. And then uh, after that one, you know, I started in, being involved in other interviews and I started to get more involved in the actual conversations. Um, so because, because then, because I was brought in as more of a consultant, as in, you know, I'm consulting with these, uh, these, these, these companies on who to hire, um, rather than you're just, you know, a, a techie, we need a techie in here. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really interesting one. I, I'm super, uh, yeah, I'm super down for that. Let's, let's do that next week. Let's do an interview style, um, talk next week. That would be really That'll be really useful. I'll, what I'll probably do is do a, like a list again, like, you know, my five, five, top five, blah, blah, blah things. Let's do that. But this time with interviews. So maybe like the top five things I expect from the, uh, an interview candidate, you know, looking for uh, a job. And I might even go as far as doing it in, in a very generic way, as in let's not, go down the route of this person is interviewing for a back-end development or this in- person is interviewing for um, front-end development. Because I do feel that there are things that all developers should bring to the table when it comes to interviews. So maybe we'll, we'll do that. But um, I will, uh, I'll have a think. I'll have a think. Thank you for that, Bernard. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Right. I'm going to finish the rest of my beer. I think I've only had one swig of that. Hmm. And I will see everybody, hopefully, on Sunday um, at 14.30 GMT. And we will be taking another look at, uh, not, for, sorry, midday, <laughs> midday, 12 o'clock, um, on Twitch, how to code well, uh, twitch.tv forward slash how to code well. And we'll be probably looking into um, the uh, the order summary stuff. But also something that I wouldn't mind playing with at some point is um, Sentry. Um, because I would like to have a tool that monitors bugs and notifies me of bugs. <laughs> so I've never played with Sentry before and I wouldn't mind playing with it at some point. So we might do that this weekend. It really depends on how much code I can actually write tomorrow, um, all the way up to Sunday. So it really depends on where, where we're with that. Anyway, thank you ever so much for watching. Happy coding everybody. And, um, do check out the rest of the episodes on uh, Spotify or iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Thank you very much. Happy coding, everybody. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.